I was absolutely determined I was going to get to the top. The journey was fascinating. Um, we hiked the first day you go through um, what looks like rainforest. And then you realize that what you've actually been doing is hiking through the clouds and you emerge of the clouds. And that night you're looking at sunset below you. That's Karen Gertschwitz, author of the new book, Travel Mania, Stories of Wanderlust. With more than 90 countries under her belt, Karen has experienced the life-changing moments that only five decades of traveling can provide. Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. At the age of 17, Karen left home and boarded a flight for Europe, where she traveled alone for three years. That was the start of her life of adventure and travel addiction, albeit a healthy addiction that she doesn't want treatment for. Although her adventures began at 17, they were influenced by her surroundings and her grandmother. My grandmother, who, after burying her third husband, decided that it was time for her to see the world. Now, she was raised in um, what's now the Ukraine and hadn't been back, but she hadn't also hadn't seen the U.S. She had been in New York and in Florida, and that was it. And at age, I think about 64 or 65, she took off. And first she traveled around the U.S. by bus. And then she decided she wanted to go back to the Soviet Union. And I knew that if she could do it, I could do it. Um, Cause she was almost 70 when she went. And that was very unusual in the early 1960s for a single woman at that age to go anywhere, much less overseas. And my mother was fascinated by cultures. And, you know, I grew up in Manhattan and had all the the benefits of being in the city. My mother would try any cuisine there was. I was probably the only kid, you know, around that at age eight or nine was eating sushi and was really good with chopsticks. And we would go to the Museum of Natural History and, you know, and go to all of the anthropological exhibits. And we would go to dance performances from around the world. And I just got really hooked on all of this and I wanted to see where it came from. And so, you know, we took a lot of little trips when I was a kid, but never anywhere terribly exotic. And I really wanted to see it. So when you hopped on that flight for the first time at 17, how did you feel? What was that like for you? Terrified. I had wanted to do it. And the story of of how it happened is a great one. And this is... um, I was going to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, and it was a horrible year. I just had a horrible year there. I was too young, and I was socially totally inept. Um, And I was taking hour and a half subway rides to get there and back, then another hour and a half to get home. And I just... I didn't know what to do. And, and I had a part-time job. And one day during a break, a guy said to me, so if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And I don't even know where it came from. I said, I'd quit school, work for a year and travel to Europe. And he looked at me and said, uh, so why don't you? And I couldn't think of a reason why not. So I did. And uh, took off. And lo and behold, got originally went to um, the Netherlands, which I didn't like very much. 
um, for lots of reasons. And then I decided, well, I'll go to London. And I immediately fell into a fabulous situation in London, as in the US. Um, it was the height of the baby boom and they didn't have enough housing for all students. So I went to what I thought was like a cheap hotel for students. Well, it turned out to be overflow housing for the University of London. And so I fell into this whole group of British students. In me, the first night, they said, come on, you gotta go out to dinner with us. Um, and made a whole bunch of friends within a week. They told me about an art college, which I was an art major, um, that they thought I could probably get into, even though it was, you know, um, middle of the semester. So I did. And the rest, as they say, is history. And there were cheap student fairs, and I could go off and go to Paris for a weekend, go to Rome. You know, things were dirt cheap back then. I love the arts. I just love the arts. And London, like New York, is the epicenter. And so between the museums were all free, you could buy tickets to the theater in The Gods. So you could go to the theater for $3 maybe. Um, there was, a, you know, it was the time of Carnaby Street and, and just outrageous things going on. And, and again, I had made this whole group of friends within a few days. And I ended up, I was still friends with some of them, you know, many, many years later. And it was, it just felt wonderful. And I'd never done ceramics before, but that was the only class I could get into. And as it turned out, I loved ceramics and I ended up getting a bachelor's and a master's of fine arts and ceramics. So it all kind of fell together. Just the impact of travel, its transformative power and how it changed your your life and your book uh, really hints at that uh, through these different experiences. The main thing that you learn more than anything else when you travel is that people, no matter where they are, and I don't care if it's Africa or Europe or Asia or South America or the US have more in common than they have that separates them. And the more you travel, the more you realize that. And people are generally very kind and very helpful. They're curious. Now, all I have to do is say I'm from New York and everybody has heard of New York. And so they want to know about it. And they want to know about my experiences and, they, and I want to ask them about their lives. Um, now, it helps that my profession ended up being marketing and marketing research. And so I'm a very good interviewer. And I use those skills to get people to talk. I, I once had a bet with someone that I could talk about, get them to talk about anything for a half an hour. And we had a dinner. That was the bet. And they said, great, canned peas. After 20 minutes, she gave up and said, you won. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because I, I, I really can make people, you know, just be interested in things and, and talk about it. And, um, and I love talking to people. You just, you really do get a sense. The world has changed a lot since I first started traveling. Um, you used to be able to look at someone and know where they were from. Now they could be from anywhere because it's, people have moved all around the world, we all dress similarly, and yet everyone has a unique perspective. 
and they all have interesting foods that they eat and celebrations that they have and ways of interacting. But say birthday and everybody celebrates, no matter where you are on the globe, that's a big one, you know. <laughs> um, and, and it's just fun. People, and I've got invited to weddings of people I don't know because I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And they may have different ways of doing things, but the sentiment is the same. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the same pretty much wherever you are. Um, you know, it's a joyous occasion. I was at one wedding. This is actually with friends that I knew. He's from Denmark. She is from Belgium. And one of their, um, one of the things that they do for, I got about eight different explanations of why, is they hold the groom up on a chair, they pull off his shoes, they take off his socks and put a hole in it, cut off the toe. And okay, why? And the answer was, because no, no other woman is going to want to be with a man who's got holes in his socks. And it's like, uh, okay. And then I got a different explanation of, you know, it's going to be harder for him to walk away. And anyhow, I must have gotten eight or nine different explanations of why, but everybody just thought it was very funny. And okay, that's a tradition. Who knew? From one travel addict to another, I was curious what Karen loves about travel and what motivates her to explore the world? Just about anything is, is, the, is the truth of it. Um, if somebody says to me, um, in fact, somebody did, you want to go to Morocco in June and, and hike in the Atlas Mountains. And I thought about it for about five minutes and thought, it's going to be bloody hot. And then I thought, well, what, you know, why not? And so I went on a camel trek in the middle of June. I will go anywhere on a whim. I've, I've read articles in National Geographic and went, oh, must go there. I have to see this. I've, um, you know, I subscribe to every travel magazine there is and have for a very long time. I love reading travel books. Um, and if I read something that just strikes me as being really interesting. I love festivals of, of different kinds um, because people are out and they're celebrating and it's usually something that's, you know, I'm not familiar with. And you just get to see people having a great time, however it is that they go about doing it. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world through stories at worldfootprints.com and make sure to subscribe to the World Footprints newsletter for compelling and exclusive content. Tabby Biddle said, Through my travels, I found, ironically, that the further I moved away from my comfort zone and the familiar, the closer I actually felt to the truth of my very own self. Here's more of our conversation with Karen Gertschwitz, author of the compelling memoir, Travel Mania. One of the richest things about traveling is the transformation that takes place within ourselves and the life lessons that one acquires as a result of a travel experience. There is one powerful life lesson Karen learned on Mount Kilimanjaro that we wanted to know more about. Climbing Kilimanjaro was both the hardest thing I've ever done physically, I think, 
largely because of the altitude. The actual hiking is surprisingly not difficult were it not at 15,000 feet and 17,000 feet. Um, it is a, it's a journey that you're not competing against anyone else. And I was so determined I was going to get to the top. Uh, you know, this was going to be, and I, I exercised like a mad woman for months before I went. You know, I swam a mile every other day and I was, and I spoke to a lot of people and, and more people have climbed than you would imagine. Uh, but I was absolutely determined I was going to get to the top. The journey was fascinating. Um, we hiked, the first day you go through um, what looks like rainforest, and then you realize that what you've actually been doing is hiking through the clouds, and you emerge above the clouds, and that night you're looking at sunset below you. And it's all around you, and there's nothing impeding it, and then the stars come out. And you have never seen stars because there is zero ambient light. And it is, it's a sight that, that is just breathtaking. The next day it gets harder to hike and you keep hiking and you go through scrub and then it begins to look like the moon. That's the only way to describe it. It's just rocks. Um, and at that cabin, there's a, it's kind of a, an area where people going up and down stop. So it's quite large. And I, there must have been, I, I started counting languages that I was listening to. There were 30 or 40 different languages, um, you know, because everybody was from all over the world. Um, the, then you go up to a cabin that's at um, 15,500 feet and you start to feel I started to feel altitude sickness. Um, you're hiking for hours. It's, it's something out of Kafka because you can see where you're hiking to and it doesn't look very far. And three hours later, you still haven't gotten there and there's nothing around you and it's kind of zen. You get up to the cabin, it's freezing cold. You may be on the equator, but you're at such a high altitude that it's bitter, bitter cold. and. You sleep for a few hours and at midnight they wake you up and you start to do the final ascent. And the only way I can describe it, I've never been a meditator, but I can imagine that that is exactly what it feels like when you get into a complete Zen space. There is, all you could hear is people breathing and, um, you know, and people shuffling because it's very steep and you can't think about anything except breathing because you are literally breathing because if you don't very regularly you just you know the air is so thin that you you would begin to feel awful um i did not make it to the top i made it within a few hundred feet of the top and i started to throw up and the minute you start to, to do that they because you can literally die you have to go back down and as I said, I was absolutely determined that I was gonna to get to the top. And what I realized in the most profound way that I possibly could have, so that I actually didn't care if I'd gotten to the top, that journey was so transformative in be in the moment, 
be where you are, take in all the experiences, and if you don't get somewhere, you know what? At the end of the day, it actually doesn't matter. If you've been really present while you're while you're moving along your life, and um, it was it was really profound for me in that way. Kilimanjaro was just one of many many stories that Karen shares in her book Travel Mania, but unfortunately, we didn't have time to ask her about the kamikaze taxi driver in Cairo, or the trek through the Moroccan desert on camel. Just a couple of the stories she shares. But we were interested to know how she was able to recall, catalog, and condense five decades of travel stories that cover over 90 destinations into one book. My mother, when I was a kid, got me journaling. I found one from when I was seven years old that has little drawings of airplanes, and I kept it up. I have journals going back to that very, very first trip to Europe, Um, thousands of pages of journals. Once I had a laptop, I just wrote into the laptop, and while I was working professionally, um, I had somebody who did transcriptions for me, and I literally read aloud every single one of my handwritten journals and got them on the computer so I can access every journal from age seven till yesterday. And I have a very good filing system, Um, so I can actually find them. And I... um, I go back to them for notes, and, and between photos and my journals, they're really good memory triggers. Really good memory triggers. And I've always liked to write, so it's, it's something that I've been doing for a very long time. Living through the mandatory pause that COVID imposed on us all has been incredibly difficult. Personally, as a travel journalist who couldn't travel and hasn't traveled for a year, there are times I just wanted to scream. So how did Karen, a self-proclaimed travel addict, navigate the rough waters of COVID? I cannot live without traveling. That's which I knew before. But what ended up happening was after, well, I came back from London on March 16th, which was the last day that regular flights came in um, without there being a big rigmarole. Um, I was in London. And after about a month or two of being at home, I couldn't stand it anymore. So what I started doing, I have a car, which is unusual in Manhattan, but I do. And I would take drives. And I would go to all the places within 50 miles of New York that I always said I was going to go to and never did. And there are fabulous things around the area. I love street art. So I started finding street art everywhere. And I was outside. I was exploring. I was taking photographs. Um, I went to every Audubon facility, every state and city park there is, including ones that I didn't even know existed, because I had to just keep exploring. I would go into neighborhoods and you could go into grocery stores. Great, I'd go into an Indian grocery. I'd go into a Japanese grocery. Um, I That was as close as I could get to traveling. And fortunately, I live in a place that has a lot of um, opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I was finishing the book. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of time spent on that. And, and 
the, the interesting part is the book could have been twice as long. And, I, and, you know, clearly it was way too long when I first submitted it. And so I had to reread it. And so I relived a lot of the trips and, and I have enough material. I could probably do a second book tomorrow if I wanted to. Um, and so it was a, a weeding out process. And why do I want this story in there? What does it say? Is it, you know, is there a point to the story other than it just being fun or interesting? Does it say something about travel, about me, about what it means to have a life that's really, you know, my, my original title for the book was Travel Junkie. You know, it's like, I have to have my fix. And um, so it, it was uh, a, a little bit of, you know, and planning. Where do I want to go next? When this is all over, where do I want to go? And start researching it. And um, my list, which is always very long, got a lot longer this year. And what are the ones at the top of your list? I have three, and I don't know which one I'll go to first. I have always wanted to go to the South Pacific. I have never been in that part of the world. I don't particularly want to go to Tahiti, which I've heard all kinds of things about. But I do want to go to places like Tonga and the Cook Islands and you know, really out there um, because I just have never been there. And I would like to go um, to New Guinea again, because I've never been there. And, and from everything that I've seen and read, it looks like a phenomenal culture. So, so that's very high. Somewhere that was never on my radar, but this year came onto my radar is Malta. And I really want to go to Malta. People have told me it's absolutely beautiful you know, lovely culture, lovely place, easy to travel in. So that's very high on my list. And then there's a few places I'd like to go back to. It's the people we meet while traveling that provide some of the best memories. So I asked about the most interesting person Karen has met throughout the 90 countries she's traveled to. Well, the one I had the most fun with, without question, was in Indonesia, I met a puppet master. And I kind of stumbled into his shop. I spent an entire afternoon with him. I mean, like four or five hours with him putting on a show for me and then showing me how he constructed the puppets and letting me play with the puppets. And it was fascinating. And he did not speak a word of English. My Indonesian is non-existent. And we had the absolute best time. And, you know, it was like I was the perfect audience for him and, and he was the perfect performer from my perspective. And the person she'd like to sit next to on our next long haul flight? Well, if I could resurrect my mother, I would bring my mother along. My mother always wanted to travel. Um, and for various reasons, when she was young, um, <laughs> it was during the beginning of what would be the Second World War, and you know there was no way she could be a Jewish woman traveling in Europe. That would have been a very bad idea. Um, and as she got older, she had some illnesses that prevented her from traveling. But she always loved it, and. Um, we did do a couple of trips together, one very sad one, which if you've seen the book, you know about. Uh, but um, I, would, I would love to be able to bring my mother along and experience somewhere with her. I would, I, no question about it, that's who I would bring. Thank you. 
there were so many stories that we did not unpack with Karen, but I felt we needed to strike a balance between not sharing her entire book, but really pulling out some intriguing stories that uh, she, she has written about. And the one story I wanted to share because it had a personal meaning to me was the Mount Kilimanjaro story. Because just remember... I missed two opportunities to climb Kilimanjaro with, with two friends. And so as she spoke, I kind of visualized myself, you know, going through altitude. And, you know, I have an issue with altitude sickness, as you saw when I was in Colombia, uh, Bogota, Colombia. I thought I was going to die. So I'm hoping when I do, and hopefully when we go climb Kilimanjaro, I think, you know, I was meant to wait for you to, to climb Kilimanjaro. Uh, I hope that we don't experience what Karen did. Well, hopefully we'll be in uh, tip-top shape to take on that challenge. And what I liked about Karen's story were the uh, comments she made about London, a place that she escaped to after leaving college to kind of discover herself in her early years. And that really cemented that travel bug for her. And that really resonated with me because of your time in London. Mm-hmm. And... Also, the fact, too, that this book, Travel Mania, is the product of lifelong journaling inspired by her mom. So she's had these stories going back for decades and to be able to bring them forth and even find the best ones for a book. Uh, you know, kudos to her for doing that and sharing that as a first-time author. And she talked about, you know, the memory triggers. And unlike Karen, I've not done any journaling. I mean, barely any journaling. And so my memory trigger triggers would be the photographs that uh, I have. And I have no idea what to do about the pre-digital photos I, I took because some of them I can't find. But I really enjoyed this conversation, and it kind of satisfied my travel bug. Um, And I'm really looking forward to getting back out there in the world like everyone else who hasn't been able to travel over the last year. In closing, we want to give Karen the last word to share what her hope is for the people who read her book. My hope was, one, to to show how it really can change your perspective on the world, but Even more importantly than that, I want people to get out there and experience it for themselves. I want them to be so jazzed by the stories that they can't wait to go and explore. Um, That to me would be the absolute best thing that could happen if I could convince five people who never traveled to get on an airplane and go somewhere off the beaten path, that would be a success. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we thank you for choosing to spend this time with us. Thank you for giving us the space to help you discover the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. 
World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.